Good morning. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This can be found on page 361 of the Black Bibles in your pews. 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside." And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name through his finished work. And God, we ask this morning as we uh, look at this scripture, would you give us eyes to see wonderful things from your word? God, would you open our hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning? God, would you cause us to stand in awe of your glory and your majesty? And I ask this morning as we open your word together, as we have sung songs of praise and thanksgiving as we have rehearsed 
the truth of the gospel as we have confessed our sins and heard the assurance of your word. God, as we hear your word declared and as we come to the table of fellowship with you this morning, I ask that you would fill this house with your glory. Would you cause us to be aware of the weight of your presence, the majesty of your presence? God, would you give us a window by faith into the glorious inheritance we have in Christ Jesus, that right now you dwell with us and we dwell with you? God, would you fill us, fill us this morning by the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. And for his glory, amen. So with these chapters, as we are going to look at 2 Chronicles 2 to 5 this morning, uh, we're actually brought to the crescendo or the climax point of the narrative of Chronicles. So we've been preaching through 1 Chronicles through last fall, and we resumed in 2 Chronicles last week. But what we have been doing for so long is showing and looking at how the chronicler has emphasized and narrated David's consuming vision to build a house for the Lord. The vision was built on his unique revelation of the need for a place or the desire of God for a place where he would be at rest among his people, where he could dwell with them and meet with them. We've seen through our time in First Chronicles that although David was not permitted himself to build the house, he, his commitment to that vision consumed his life. He spent all of his energy and focus and leadership and uh, efforts to prepare Solomon for this exact moment. So we come to this mighty crescendo of everything we've been working toward is culminating. And we have these four chapters where Solomon sets out to build the house of the Lord. Look at letter B. In these four chapters, the chronicler devotes a significant amount of space to narrate the building of the temple. I want you to take your Bible and open it up to Second uh, Chronicles 2 if you've closed it. I just want to highlight the amount of energy that is devoted to the building of the temple here, right? We've, we've had all this energy devoted to the preparations for the temple, and now we're gonna have four chapters devoted to the details of Solomon setting out to build this house, right? In the first nine verses of Second Chronicles 2, we see Solomon begin by reaching out to Hiram, the king of Tyre, to uh, enlist workers and laborers towards this task. And the reason he wants to do that, right, we see in verse 1, Solomon purposed to build a temple to the name of the Lord. Why? Verse 5, he desired to set out a, to build a house that would be so great because God is greater than all, right? He wants, he has this consuming vision to give God a house worthy of his name, worthy of his grandeur, worthy of his glory. And so he enlists this pagan Gentile king to send us your best workers, your best stuff, so that we can accomplish this task. And then we see in chapter 2, 10 to 18, the, the, the Gentile king responds and he goes, God actually loves you. He loves his people. Look at verse 11. 
He's made you the king over them. And blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This is so compelling a vision that even the Gentile kings are wanting to get in on it. Right, the, the treasuries of the nations are coming to build up this glorious place for the Lord. Then we get to chapter three and we start to see all of the details and dimensions of the house, right? Like he starts in the most holy place. It's gonna be this wide by this long by this tall. We're gonna see the exterior place is this long by this wide by this tall. And it's minuscule details going into the building of the house. And then the furnishings of the house, chapter four, right? There's gonna be an altar of bronze and 10 golden lampstands and here's the curtains and here's the poles and everything's aligned in gold and all all this stuff, right? It's an unbelievable amount of work and energy devoted to this. Then we get to chapter five, as we heard read, where the Ark of the Covenant is brought, the people consecrate themselves to the Lord, and when the work is finished, God comes and fills his house. So let her see. We might be tempted to ask, why all this attention to the temple? The sheer space of the narrative and the extensive details that have been given to the temple obviously tell us it's important. However, I think contemporary readers and contemporary Christians particularly often fall off the horse one of two ways when it comes to the idea of the temple. And why is there all this stuff here? Why is there all this detail? We either fall off the side where we get bogged down in the details and we're trying to make sense of it all and picture it all and maybe understand like what is, is there some sort of like allegorical meaning behind it all and we're trying to connect dots or we just go, well, because it's the old covenant, God did away with it all so we didn't need to worry about it, right? We fall off the horse one of two ways, right? I was, Ricky cracked me up this week. We were talking about this and Ricky goes, yeah, sometimes when I read these kind of accounts in the Old Testament, I think, you know, Lord, so much trouble in church history would have been avoided with like one extra sentence in the New Testament, right? Do you baptize babies or not? Right, one sentence. Another sentence on submission would have been really helpful, right? Like we, we go, man, like one more sentence could have solved a world of problems. And here we have the, the, the cherubim are going to be this big and this wing has to be five cubits and this one has to be five cubits and this one has to be five cubits and they got to touch each other. And you're going like, the details are overwhelming. What does this have to do with anything? Right? You might be tempted to believe that. However, I think there is absolute essential importance in the scope and the size and the weight of these narratives that we have to understand and seek to understand as the people of God. When we come to a section like this, it isn't a throwaway. It's not just to like get over it or go, oh, well, that doesn't have anything to do with our worship anymore or our, our way of approaching God, so we don't need to know the importance of it. What I think we need to do is seek to understand what is going on here and why it matters. What we will come to see, or what I hope to show us this morning, is that the temple is a picture. It's like a representation. It's a model or a type, as, the, as, as we might see it in the scripture, 
of God's ultimate desire for creation and human history. So here's my thesis. Temple, temples matter, tabernacles matter in the story of redemption because God is trying to scream something to you. He is trying to tell you about the ultimate purpose for which he created everything, which is this. He is building himself a house where he can dwell with his people. That's the point. That's the point of the whole Bible. It's the point of the scripture. God is architecting a house where he can dwell with his people. It's what he desires. It's what he's working toward. It's why there's all this energy given to these little pictures of houses that happen throughout the Old Testament because they are like a portrait or a model trying to point to something about what has um, moved God to even set out to create in the beginning. So if we understand this, if we start to see this as the goal of all creation, we can understand how the ministry and work of Jesus fulfills this picture, and we can seek to apply this in our world. So that's my hope for today. And the way we're going to do that, I'm going to give you a whole Bible theology. Okay, are we ready? You buckled in? All right, here we go. Turn in your Bible back to Genesis 1. We're going to start at the beginning. So from the opening pages of the Bible, we are given a portrait of God's desire and his design for creation. Hey, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever think about what God wants? And I don't mean like, what does God want you to do in taking this job or not taking this job? Or What does God want you to do with your time or your money? Those are really important questions to ask. But have you ever stopped and asked, why did God even do it at all? What is God's desire? Why did an uncreated, perfectly self-satisfied being with all power, all wisdom, all glory, all goodness, why in the world did he even open up his mouth and say, let there be? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever started at the beginning? What does God want? Because the answer to that question really dictates a lot about why you and I are even here and what we're oriented toward, right? So if God has a desire and a design, wouldn't it stand that we want to know what that is and seek to, by his grace, live up in accordance with it? That's where we want to start. So the beginning, the opening pages of scripture reveal a God who has a purpose, a goal, and an end toward which he is working. So the creation story of Genesis 1 to 2, 3 is a beautiful narration of God's initial activity to establish and order creation. I want want you to see three things this morning in the creation account. First, God created everything. This isn't a throwaway. It's not... Uh, something we just run by. God created everything. Look at the opening verse of Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
In the beginning, two words. God created. God designed. God set out to make the heavens and the earth. That's shorthand in the Hebrew Bible for everything. Everything seen, everything unseen, everything on the earth, under the earth, in the heavens, in the skies, in the cosmos. Everything that exists, exists because this being decided for it to. That's where it starts. He created. That's where everything begins. The narrative brings us face to face with this character called God, this being called God, the author of everything. Number two, God has a purpose in creation. I don't have time to really tease this out. You're going to have to just trust me here. I'll do just a little bit. But the ordering of the creation account itself is constructed and designed to crescendo with the creation of mankind and the seventh day rest of God. So this construct is designed to highlight that God has a purpose. Let me show you how this happens. When God creates on all of the days, what does he say? Let there be, 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 let there be. We get to the sixth day, let there be, let earth bring forth living creatures. And he's continuing along the same pattern. And then there's a record scratch where the pattern's broken. It's meant to say, this matters. Look out for this. Look at verse 26. Then God said, not let there be man. What does he say? Let us make man. Everything else has come out by just the sheer, raw power of his voice. Let there be light. Light exists. Let there be an expanse. Heavens separate from the earth. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. Let us make. There is this, this is like a, a light flashing going, watch this, watch this, watch this. This is important. I want you to catch one other thing. There's probably three or four more of these. Look throughout the narrative. Look here at verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation according to their own kind. Trees bearing fruit in their seed according to their own kind. Look at uh, verse 20, um, 21. So God created sea creatures, every living creature according to their kind, every winged bird according to their kind. What, what does he go on in verse 25? Beasts of the earth according to their kind, livestock according to their kind, everything that it creeps on the ground according to their kind. Let us make man how? According to our likeness. Again, the pattern screeches, this is important. This is the purpose. So we see here, God has a purpose. It's not just arbitrary, it's designed, it's intentional, it's structured. He is creating for a reason. Number three, we see that it's purpose, his purpose is ordered and intentional. There is a profound ordering and intentionality to what is happening here. Go to page two. So in the narrative, I've said this already, but it's clear that the climax of the creation account is God's creation of mankind, right? So this matters. God set out to make people, image bearers, people 
are the crescendo of this creative endeavor. And we're told that mankind is created with two distinct purposes from the beginning. Look at verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's one purpose. And let them have dominion. That's a second purpose. Let me explain what those ideas mean. First, the image and likeness of God simply means that mankind has the capacity, the faculties, the hardware required to relate to God in communion and reflect him in the world. That's what image means. We can commune with God and we can reflect him to the world. That's image and likeness, one vocation of man. But the second vocation is we've been given dominion, a place from the place of communing with God. Mankind is given this mandate to subdue the earth, to fill it, to overrule it, to subject it, but not subject it to our own desires or our own designs, subject it to the pattern and desire and design of God himself as his under stewards. Right, as under stewards, in that we're not to subdue the world or bend it or craft it to the way that we see fit, but according to the glorious design of the Creator. So, having created for six days and bringing his creation to a crescendo with the creation of mankind, the narrative tells us that God finished his labor and took up rest among his creation. Look at this in chapter two. Verse two, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. That's really important. We're gonna come back to this a lot this morning. God finished his work. Maybe underline finished. He finished his work and he rested. And rested in this context, don't get the idea of like God's tired and he needed a nap. Resting means uh, inhabiting being toward, uh, enjoying, experiencing the full reality of what it was created for. This isn't God like needing to kick his feet up at the end of the day because the dogs are barking, okay? Like this is God being toward his creation, enjoying it in its full uh, completedness. He is inhabiting his creation. That's what is happening here. So here we're given the first window of the ultimate purpose of why God's created at all. The creation story tells us this. God has made a house, a dwelling place, where he might dwell with his people at a place of rest. Okay, so letter E, immediately in Genesis 2, we're, we're taking this glorious painting of this broad picture of creation and we focus it in on a particular purpose as God expressed his creation purpose in the ideal manner at the time of when man was created. So we see the man, Adam, created by God to live in glorious communion with him. And he's given a charge to keep and watch this garden-like sanctuary that is in Eden. It's common that biblical interpreters see the Garden of Eden as maybe this first temple in the Bible, the house that God built where he would dwell with his people. Okay, so again, this is the theme. God is building a house where he can dwell with his people. And we see this at the very beginning from the jump. Letter F, 
we all likely know the story. Adam and Eve are subjected to a temptation, a test. They succumb to the temptation. They disobey the clear commandment of the Lord. And immediately, everything about the idyllic, perfect state of creation is torn apart. God comes to them, sin is introduced into the world, death is introduced into the world, curses are introduced into the world, and we see, ultimately, the ultimate punishment given to mankind for their sin is exile from the house of God, right? They can't go in anymore. They've been kicked out of the house, and there's a barred entry, namely a cherubim with a big old sword to keep them from coming in. Right? They, they're, not, they're not getting anywhere near. Way better than like any home security system you could come up with. They have been forbidden to come in to experience his everlasting life. Now, something fascinating happens, right? The people are kicked out of the garden, out of the house, but these under stewards, they've rebelled against God. They're still trying to fill the earth. They're still going and they're conforming it just like they were made to, but they can no longer access the way that God desired to subdue the earth. And so they subdue the earth in perverse, wicked, destructive ways. We see murder and sexual immorality and uh, uh, just wickedness abound within several chapters of them being removed from the house of God. So letter G. Fast forward a couple thousand years. After the Exodus, Moses is given instructions by God to build a tabernacle. This is like a movable temple. It's a tent that is going to be the house to God's glory. It's a movable temple built by God's people according to the pattern of God's true house in heaven and is to be his dwelling place among his people. So there's a lot of details given to the tabernacle just like there is to the temple, right? If you read through Exodus, you can get bogged down in the details. Yet again, all of chapters 25 to 27 are God going, hey, this is how I want you to do it. And then chapters 35 to 38 are them doing it and it's basically just saying the same things instead of do it this way, it's they did it this way. And it's all the same stuff, reiterated once again. Again, like, parchment is like uh, limited at this point. But this mattered. The Spirit of God revealed this. This really matters. So we got to go, why? Why does it matter? It demonstrates the care and importance God has to one day again build a house for himself where he can dwell with his people. Look at this, Exodus 25. This is why God wants this. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God expels the people because of sin, but God doesn't cast off his design for creation. He doesn't go, okay, forget about it. I don't want to do that anymore. You, you transgressed one time, I'm going to throw it all away and I'm going to start again. He goes, no, no, no. Even your disobedience will not frustrate my design for creation. I will have a house where I can dwell with my people. And so we get this little picture in the tabernacle. Build me a house. Why? Because I want to dwell with my people. 
Exactly like I showed you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. All of its furniture, make it this way. So letter H, we're told upon the completion of the work of the temple, or the tabernacle, the Lord descended in a cloud to fill the tabernacle with his glorious presence, taking up his rest among his people. Okay, remember Genesis 2, God finished the work. What does he do? He fills the house. The work's finished, he comes and fills. We see this again in Exodus 39. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meaning, it was finished. Underline that word finished again. It's important, right? Circle it, highlight it. Then we go on a couple verses. What happens? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay. So we find ourselves at this like little midway point here. God again now has a house among his people. However, what we see in the Old Testament is there's, there's all of this sacrificial and worship ritual that has to surround it in order for God in his holiness to not just consume everybody. Right, because people are still sinful. People are still wicked. People are still outside of being able to dwell with him in the way that he desires. So there's all these sacrifices and rituals and priestly ministry and the system that's built around it. So we see that the house of God here is as much exclusionary as it is welcoming. Right, there's this veil that only one guy can go inside one time once a year. And he has to come under all these certain circumstances. And so even the dwelling of God among the people of God is a foretaste of something. It's not finalized. It's not full. It's not what God ultimately desires. Go to page three. So with the building of the temple of Solomon here in our chapter, the work of the tabernacle is expanded and intensified, right? Like it's way bigger Everything that was like this size in the tabernacle is like this size in the temple. It's like supersized. He takes it, he expands it, and it's way more valuable. Way more gold, way more silver. I mean, if we remember from last week, it says that Solomon. Gol <laughs> that's like a Lord of the Rings uh, <laughs> mashup with, with King Solomon. Uh, sorry about that. Solomon made gold more ubiquitous in Israel than stone. I mean, imagine all the stone around here if it was gold, right? Like that's, that's the days we're living in. Solomon is wealthy and he is expanding and intensifying the work of the tabernacle. Again, the building of the temple was according to the pattern of God's heavenly house to symbolize a greater reality, right? The purpose of creation was what? To God could build a house where he could dwell with his people forever. We see again the same pattern in 2 Chronicles 5. The work gets finished, the house gets filled. Thus, all the work that Solomon did in the house was finished. The house of the Lord, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So this portrait of God's purposes in the tabernacle and the temple can be summarized in a few ways. 
Number one, the tabernacle and temple are to serve as types, or you could say a model. Think of it like an like a architectural model, right? It needs to be at least three times bigger. Some of y'all got that. It's like a model that is representational of another reality. It's like a picture, right? Like a picture of someone you love can approximate things about them. It can warm your heart to them, but it isn't the fullness of standing with them, right? It's a picture of something. It's the picture of a house where God would dwell in the midst of his people. That's number one. Number two, the tabernacle and temple were designed according to the pattern of God's heavenly house, his glorious place where his glory dwelled. You can go read Hebrews 8 to 10 about that and read the rest of that on your own. Number three, the tabernacle and temple were to be the centerpiece of God's people. This was the place where they came, where they worshiped, where they received from him, where they conformed their lives around his ways and where they then were able to fulfill their mandate in the world. Okay, so this is what the tabernacle and the temple are about, right? There's a lot of energy given to this. So why does it matter? Why does this matter, right? And why do we not just go, man, that doesn't matter anymore. Jesus came and we have forgiveness in Jesus. And so here we go, right? It's because of how the New Testament demonstrates what God has done in Christ. I think this really matters for us. So in the New Testament, Jesus has reoriented the temple, or you could say the house of God, around himself. Through him, we can see that each of the previous houses, the tabernacle, the temple, they served as just a picture of what God is doing in his new covenant. Okay, let me just prove this to you. Letter B. Jesus steps on the scene and declares that he actually is the true temple. So the thing that the building was meant to point to, Jesus stands up and goes, I'm the real one. Look at John chapter two here. Jesus talks to the people, they go, what authority do you have to say any of these things and do these things? And he says, here's my authority. Destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And then they interpret it. John understands he was speaking about the temple that was his body. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples understood this, right? Jesus is standing up and going, I now am the meeting place between God and man. Do you want to know where the house of God is? It's wherever I am. It is where I am. I am the place where heaven and earth crash in together, meet together, where God's purposes are inaugurated and established and made known in me alone. And do you want to know how I will demonstrate that to everybody? Kill me and I'll raise from the dead in three days. And I will demonstrate that heaven and earth are summed up in me. The, join, the joined place, the meeting place of God's eternal purposes and this world exists in me and in me alone, Jesus says. John understands this in his gospel and he, in his introduction, gives us this as a picture. Verse 14 of John 1, the word became flesh, that's the eternal word of God, God of God, he became flesh and dwelt. Now that word dwelt, 
in Greek literally means to tabernacle. He came and was the tabernacle in our midst, among us. And because he is the tabernacle, we see God's glory. The glory of God that filled the house. The glory of God that filled the tabernacle. We see it. No longer in a tent, no longer with a cloud, no longer in the presence that descends upon it, but in this carpenter from Nazareth who walked among us, who came to his own and his own didn't know him. We saw God's glory. We witnessed the pure, unbridled glory of God made known in the world, full of grace and truth. Letter D, Jesus also presents himself as the greater Solomon. He'll be the one to build the new house of God in his life, death, resurrection, and the birth of the church. He is the one who ultimately finishes the work to prepare the way for the new creation of God. He is the one who fills his house with glory in the sending of the spirit. Look at Matthew 12, 42. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, I want you to know something. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was a wise man. He did all these things. He built the temple. He gained renown. Something greater than Solomon is here. A greater temple builder than Solomon is right in front of you. Now I want you to catch this. I don't think this is insignificant or unintentional in the gospel writer's presentation of what happens on the cross. Look at John 19. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Okay, what have we talked about? When the work gets finished, the glory of God comes and fills the temple. Okay? Jesus on the cross utters these glorious words. And these aren't just the words to say that your sins are forgiven. That is a part of it, absolutely essential part of it. How can you come into the house of God? You have to have your sins forgiven because you are a sinner. I am a sinner, we are far off. The only hope that we have to dwell with God in his house is that he provides a way for us to become clean and sanctified and washed from our defilement. So when he says it's finished, he means your sins are forgiven. In and through me, if you look upon the Son of Man who has been raised up, your sins will be forgiven and you will be healed. He declares it is finished, but that is not the only way in which this is finished. He is saying that now the work of inaugurating God's true, lasting, new creation and his house is done. No more work has to happen. No more work has to be accomplished. Nothing else stands in the way for God's ultimate creation purpose, to have a house and dwell with his people there. Nothing else has to happen. He's done it all. Look what happens when he says this. Matthew tells us that at the same time Jesus calls out, it's finished. He cries out with a loud voice, yields up his spirit, and what happens? The veil that kept the holy of holies from the rest of the world was torn in two, completely rent asunder, symbolizing, giving witness to the fact that what kept you and I from the presence of God no longer exists. 
that there is now a new way into the Holy of Holies, not through a curtain, not through a veil, it's through the flesh of Jesus. That's what's happening there. Now, I want you to catch this. Acts chapter two, when the work is done, God fills his house. Look at Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? And the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with the glory of God, and the priests could not stand. When Moses finished the work, when he had done all of the work, God came upon the tabernacle like a cloud, and the glory filled the house. When the Son of God offered up his life and finished the work, he responded by filling his house with glory. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus alone opens the new and living way through his own flesh into the presence of God, the true heavenly temple. Now with access into God's own presence, we dwell with God in his house. Look at letter F. The people of God. Here's, here's where we tie it all together. The people of God are now and are being built into God's final temple, final resting place, final house. Look at Ephesians 2. These are what the apostles, the, the imagery that they draw up and hold together, this is what they believe is happening in the building of the church. They believe that all of this hubbub that we got about curtains and gold and boxes and sizes and energy and wealth and time and resources, all of that is summed up in Christ. And Jesus now is accomplishing what he always desired to do, even when God spoke the word, let there be. That he is coming to dwell among his people and bring them into his house forever. Look at Ephesians 2. This is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus is himself the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together, grows into what? A temple in the Lord. What's the temple? The house of God where he will dwell with his people forever. In him, you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, First Peter, Peter takes this up as well. Come to Jesus. He was the living stone rejected by men. In the sight of God, he was the one chosen and precious. And you yourselves, every one of you, 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 me, we are living stones being built together into what? A spiritual house, a holy priesthood, so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's the glorious reality. Here's why the temple stuff matters. As we gather as the people of God, as we seek to walk after him, the ministry of the church, the witness of the people of God in the world, this is what is happening. 
whether we are connected to it or not, God is building his people together as his glorious house where he will dwell forever. So this, let me, let me back to the question. Why all this fuss? Why all this fuss, right? Why all this energy? Why all this time, space? This is the purpose that God has for creation. And we as the people of God are being made into that right now. Right now. It's broken into the world. Yes, there's a day when we'll see it fully. Yes, there's a day when every eye will see it. But right now, God's intention for creation is breaking into this world in and through the ministry of his church. So let me apply this just for a second. And I'm not going to apply it in the way of like, what do you go do tomorrow? I'm going to apply it a little differently. I want to apply it by asking the Lord to stir us up to be a people that long to experience and know his presence, to live as we are. Look at letter A here. I long for us to be a people who rightly see the glory of what God has purposed for us in Christ. This includes seeking to stir up our affections to be a people who zealously pursue the presence of God as our foundational reality together. The presence of God is our purpose. Dwelling with God. Right? What does Jesus say in the upper room discourse? Why is he going away? Because he's going to make a house and he's going to come back to us. And he's going to take us so that we will be with him where he is. And lest you think that's only future, he then immediately turns around and says, and then I'm going to send a spirit, my spirit, another helper. And guess what's going to happen? My father and I are going to come and make our home with you right now. Right then. So not you have to wait until the day when you see Jesus face to face. Right now, we are the dwelling place of God, being built up into a holy place for him. Look at letter D. I want to just end here. There's a lot we could say. This is going to be, I just want to say this. Uh, look, at, look at Revelation 3 on the page. Revelation 3, one of the, um, one of the promises given to the churches in the, in the book of Revelation is that to the one that overcomes, you're going to be a pillar in God's house. You're never going to move. You're never going to go out. You're never going to walk away from his presence. This is your eternal reality, and you're going to really like it. It's going to be really amazing. Like, this is what you're designed for, and this is where everything is leading. You're going to get set in the house of God, and you're going to believe on that day, one day is better in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. So let's like start practicing that today. Let's like start practicing one minute before your face, Lord, is better than a thousand anywhere else. Come and fill your temple with glory that we might see you and know you and live in accordance with your ways. Let us experience the life-giving presence that you have in and among your church so that we might experience the reality that you are in us and we are in you and you have come to make your home here. Let's start practicing for that day. We're going to really like it, I promise you.
It's not going to be like in a dim mirror anymore. It's going to be full-faced, and we're going to love it. Now, here's where I want to charge us at the end. To ask God to make us aware of this even right now. Even right now. Because Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul highlights Moses' experience on the mountain of Sinai. When he goes up, he dwells in the glory cloud for 40 days. He comes down and his face is shining. He recounts that. And that's the same glory that came and filled the, t- the temple, came and filled the, the tabernacle. Paul says that, you know, we sang the song, the priests were overwhelmed. They couldn't stand, right? We heard it read. The priests couldn't continue to minister because the manifest presence of God was so thick. Paul says that was no glory compared to what you have in Christ Jesus. Every single born again believer by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us because of our faith in Christ, we experience something that makes that reality no glory. And I, I find for myself even, right, how quick I am to just like go through motions, right? Do something rote, not ask the Lord to weigh down upon my soul the reality and the scandalous like immensity of what he has granted me in Christ, of a free gift, right? Like when I look up at him, when I say yes to him, when I come to him in his word, I am experiencing, you are experiencing, you have access to something that those believers could only dream of. They were looking forward at a little model and a picture to something that you and I taste in reality. We got to ask God to make us more aware of that. We got to be more aware of it. We got we to gotta tremble up under that. We got to have awe and reverence and holy fear that the God that descended on the tabernacle and made it to where nobody could go in, the God that came upon the temple and nobody could stand up because of the weight of his presence, he has joined himself to you. 1 Corinthians 6, the one who has faith in Christ has become one spirit with him. He has come and dwelled in you by the spirit. God has filled his house with his glory. Let's ask him that we might see and know and delight in that more. Amen.